From the Western Riverside Council of Governments, I'm Rachel Singer, and this is CogCast. Building off of part one of our two-part series on early childhood development education, we continue the conversation discussing the role and impact that early childhood development centers have in our communities. On today's episode, we are joined by Tammy Graham, Executive Director of First Five Riverside, and Pam Robinson, Director of the Concilio Child Development Center. Um, Well, thank you guys both for being here with us today. We'd love to get to know a bit more. Um, So Tammy, do you want to start us off and tell us a bit about yourself? Hi, good morning. Uh, Tammy Graham, I'm the executive director of First Five Riverside. And I guess I would first share that I am the proud grandmother of six grandchildren, five of them under the age of six. Oh, wow. Lots of little youngings. And how about you, Pam? Uh, I'm I'm Pam Robinson, and I'm the executive director at Concilio Child Development Centers. And I, too, have three grandchildren. One is 10 and then the other under the age of three. So they keep me busy on my spare time. That's awesome. Lots of grandkids. So fun. So reflecting on your guys' own educational experience, um, obviously, today we're talking about early childhood development. But in in the spirit of education, what was your favorite grade in school? Um, Pammy, do you want to share first? Well, I, I was a child that really liked school. But the most memorable memorable grade that um, stands out for me is kindergarten. I loved the, the big easels with the big fat paintbrushes and um, all the, the play that went on with it. So kindergarten, I would have to say, is, was my favorite. <laughs> How about you, Tammy? Well, I too was going to say kindergarten because um, those are the stories that I heard most from my mom. Mm. And the things that I loved was all the activities, being with other kids my own age, mm-hmm. and of course, playing on the playground mm. uh, because I used to love to hang from the bars, which I know is not allowed these days <laughs> uh, by my niece. So cool. um, so kindergarten, I think, was uh, because I didn't go to preschool. Um, my, we were a military family. My mom was home with us. So I started school at kindergarten. So I think that's why I remember it the most. Well, kind of jumping into this, the discussion. So today we're talking about child, um, early childhood development education and centers. And so um, we'd love to hear just more about what both of you do and what your role is in the industry. So um, Pam, can you share about what you do at um, Concilio um, Education Centers? Sure. So I operate a state-funded preschool in the city of Riverside. We have, uh, we're fairly large. We have three classrooms. We're licensed for 144 children. However, we only have funding for 117 children. So mm-hmm. as of now, only five of the six um, classrooms are being used. And then the children that we serve, or the families we serve are, for, are low income. And my job is um, basically to oversee the operations of the program, you know, making sure that we meet all the contract requirements, um, that we're fully staffed, uh, we're in compliance. I do staff development, um, curriculum, you know, program curriculum. So um, my job is just to oversee the entire operations of the, of the center. Mm-hmm. Awesome. And how about you, Timmy? 
My job as executive director is to support the Riverside County Children's and Families Commission, which was created back in 1998 by the County Board of Supervisors after voters passed Proposition 10, which created um, the tobacco tax that supports first five. So all um, 58 counties have a first five and have tobacco tax revenues that come in that support services for children and families. So the commission has responsibility over the strategic plan and the trust fund. And so those, um, that's really my job is to carry out uh, their wishes and to ensure that um, we create a more integrated and coordinated system that supports children and families. Mm-hmm. So the way that I'm hearing you guys talk about it, so Tammy is a little bit more on the kind of facilitation of that funding. And then Pam, you're a bit more like on the ground with these, with the students and families that are coming in day in, day out to the, um, to the center. Is that, is that accurate? I would say that was accurate. Yes. So, yes, and the way that we've worked with um, licensed centers and family child care providers is through our Quality Start Riverside County initiative. So for the past five years, we've been working with providers that are interested in um, either maintaining quality within their program or enhancing quality. And we provide them funding and supports in partnership with Riverside County Office of Education and the Consortium mm-hmm. for Earthly Learning Services. Mm-hmm. Got it. So Pam, being um, kind of in and out, in day in, day out with these families, um, especially over the past year with how crazy it was, or really it was more than the past year, year and a half. Um, mm-hmm. Can you share about what your center's experience has been? Um, what Can you just paint that picture for us? So we were closed about two months um, in, in the beginning. So March, April of last year at 2020, we were closed. And when we reopened, um, it was a matter of just like restructuring. So it was like putting almost a, no, a whole new um, operation in place. You know, um, it, at that time, things were changing so much. We would have one regulation come out and another regulation and, you know, between the health department and the licensing and the state. So we were really, it was really a struggle to kind of get our feet on the ground and figure out what would be the safest way to keep the parents and the, and the staff safe. So starting out, we made a lot of changes to our program. We went from a classroom group size of 24 with three adults down to a cohort size of maximum of 16 people in a cohort. So it'd be 13 children with um, a maximum of three adults in that um, group, in that cohort size. Um, And the children didn't co-mingle from one group to the next. Um, We did things like, increased hand washing uh, facilities or or sinks. We brought in portable sinks. So children washed their hands before even coming into the building. Um, We divided our playground in sections so that groups didn't commingle. We had to create uh, a new online learning platform for the families who chose to shelter in place. that was, you know, a challenge. We go to school and we learn all how to do hands-on learning, and then all of a sudden it's virtual learning. So that was that was um, a challenge. But I think the what the pandemic 
um, brought to us um, was it played a toll on the lives of the employees. Mm-hmm. Many employees um, lost loved ones to COVID-19, especially during the winter months. I had employees coming to me nearly weekly saying, you know, um, I had a, you know, my grandfather died or my, my great uncle died or my, you know, my cousin died and, and my, you know, I had a husband that passed away. And so it really played a big mental mm-hmm. toll on the staff. And at the same time, we were hearing the same thing from the families. I mean, their families were sick or they had loved ones that they'd lost or they were separated from their loved ones. So every day, these employees were dedicated to come to work, wondering if today was the day that they were going to be exposed to Mm COVID-19, was today the day that they were going to get sick. Um, You know, what what was going to happen next? What change was going to um, take place? So unfortunately, or fortunately, I say, fortunately, we did not have any breakouts um, at the school. We were lucky for that. We did, you know, have a lot of illnesses. But at the same time, these employees were coming to work with very low wages. They were dedicated to come in. Just my center as well as, you know, all the other centers um, in the country were doing the same thing, you know, risking their, risking their health for themselves and, and um, their family to care for other people's children mm-hmm. during this time. So it, it was, um, and it still is, uh, still taking a mental toll on, on the staff. Yeah, certainly. That I mean, that definitely makes sense. And I think that like, when we think about kind of the timeline of 2020, typically, or at least for many professions, they some haven't gone back to the office still. And we are how many months out from that March 2020 kind of drop dead date. And now here are childhood development center workers coming in two months after that date. Like that's, that's really like early, I guess, in the grand scheme of what happened. So kudos to them and their families for their work ethic too. Well, I was going to say, we, we were closed for a couple of months, but I I really need to acknowledge the centers that never closed. Hmm. There, there are a lot of centers that just, they, they may be closed for one day in the beginning, um, but they were open, you know, all all year. They had to mm-hmm. for the private programs. The only way those employees were going to get paid were to be open. Mm-hmm. For me, fortunately, the state because we're state funded, we had a hold harmless clause, and we were still able to receive funding even though we didn't have all 117 children in our program. Mm-hmm. So if it wasn't for the hold harmless and thank you to legislation for making that happen. A lot of families and staff um, would not have received care, you know, or, or work. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Now, Pam, I'm wondering if you can share a little bit about how attendance played a role prior to pandemic and how that hold harmless makes a difference. Yes. Yeah, so prior to the pandemic, we were paid based on the amount of um, child days of enrollment. So amount of children that we served and the amount of um, children, the amount of days that they attended, right? Mm-hmm. So if we didn't, if we were not fully enrolled, we did not receive our full contract. This last year, uh, the 
2021 and the current year, 2122, our hold harmless clause is regardless of how many children that we serve, and regardless of the amount of days that they come, we still get our entire contract. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that provides a lot of flexibility and yeah. just space, especially in light of how often things have been and were changing so rapidly. So looking forward, as our communities continue to reopen, what are some of those anticipated challenges that childhood development centers and the general industry will face? Um, Tammy, do you have thoughts on this? And what we've been hearing consistently across the board is the challenges with the workforce, mm-hmm. right? So because of the uh, level of wages that they get paid, um, we're having challenges filling vacancies. And then that creates, you know, backlog, it creates more children on the wait list to be served. Um, they're eligible for subsidized care, but we need a place for them to go, right? And the capacity we were what's considered a child care desert uh, in Riverside County. That was the case before the pandemic. It certainly is the case now. We don't have enough facilities. We don't have enough providers and we don't have um, a strong enough workforce. So that's the biggest challenge that we're hearing right now. Um, and as the governor just approved and the legislature just approved an additional 120,000 slots or spaces for children. Um, If we got 6% of those, it would be 7,200. So we'd be able to serve um, quite a few on the list if we can find a place for them. So if we can get staff hired where there's vacancies, like Pam was saying, she has um, license capacity for 144, but only has contract for 117. If we could fill that, those spaces that she has and fund them, and she could have staff, then we could serve children. Mm -hmm. So forgive my lack of knowledge, but just as a clarifying question, how many children are like on a wait list or should be, or are eligible, I guess you could say, to be in a childhood development center? Is that a rough number? Is that something that's Uh, even? um, Yeah, I don't don't know if you have the numbers on that, Tammy, or for me. Um, well, I have numbers from, you probably got these from Joanne Lauer yeah. when she was um, sharing with you before, but the number that we know is at least over 13,000 children are on the eligibility list. That means their families have applied for subsidy and are waiting. And the way that list works is that you take the children and the families with the highest need, mm-hmm. so meaning the lowest income first. And so the families that may be working and having um, have more income are less likely to get to get support. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So there's just a, a large gap for a, a variety of reasons. Yeah, and that's not all the children who need mm-hmm. care, right? That's just the ones who know about the eligibility list, get on it. They might also be on other lists, like they might be on a Head Start list or a list for state-funded preschool. Mm -hmm. Um, But this is the subsidized alternative payment program list that we're talking about. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Pam, did you have anything to add to just like general challenges that you think the industry is going to be facing? Um, So I, I, you know, I need to echo what Tammy said. Um, The biggest challenge that I'm seeing is the lack of available workforce. 
I can pick up the phone and talk to any one of my colleagues. And I have in the last couple of weeks. And the first thing that comes, you know, to them is we have spaces for children, but we do not have workforce. Um, we don't, we do not have the people that are applying and those that are applying do not have um, the credentials or the experience. And, and I'll go back to um, Tammy bringing up the, you know, there's 120,000 space, just to give you kind of an idea of a number, 120,000 spaces that um, were released um, by the governor and as grateful as we are for that, you know, Tammy put out a number of, let's say if we got a portion of that, let's say we got 7,200, that's 900, approximately 900 employees that we would need um, to fill that. We know that there is at least 13,000 um, on the waiting list for Riverside County Office of Education of various, of various ages from, that's from birth to, I believe, 12 or 13, school, school age. Um, if that was uh, just roughly taking it at, at to an eight to one ratio, that's 1,600, about 1,600 employees that we need. Mm. But let's just, let's just say um, a lot of those 13,000 are school age kids and they're going back to school this coming year, right? Let's just say half of those. So now we're looking at, um, 800 employees that we need. There are not 800 employees out there. There's not 100 out there. There's not 50 out there. There's not 10 out there. You know, mm -hmm. so that's the the, the biggest challenge. Um, it's, it's, you know, it's kind of a vicious cycle mm -hmm. because the pay isn't enough to entice employees to work in the field. The parents cannot afford to pay more than what they're paying for childcare. Society wants to go back to work, but they can't go back to work unless there's childcare. So it's, you know, this is not a problem just in the empire. It's not just a problem in the state, but this is nationwide. Mm -hmm. And so what would be the requirements of someone to work in like a childhood development center? The minimum requirements are for core classes, four particular college classes. That's the, the very minimum. And the, some of the challenges are related to, you know, colleges and universities really working to ensure that the degrees that um, students come out with are ones that have a livable wage, right? Mm -hmm. it's, so again, another cycle is we have to increase wages to be able to ensure that people want to go into that field, right? Or say they start in a private child development center and then they get their bachelor's degree, they move on to either a Head Start or state-funded preschool that requires a bachelor's degree so they earn a higher wage um, or they go into the K-12 system and that's because they need to provide support for their families as well. It doesn't mean they didn't want to stay in a program that serves children zero to three. And again, this is the most critical time for brain development in children, right? The zero to four is that time period when their brain's developing, when they need language, when they need the social emotional support. And this is where we need staff that are qualified to do that. Hmm. And so working with community colleges, which we've been doing for, you know, forever, 
is to ensure that we have a pipeline, that we have internships, that we have um, students coming out and working in sites even while they're in school so that we can ensure that we have a strong workforce. So we've kind of looked at this, as, as you said, Pam, like a vicious cycle from a couple different angles, from a student perspective, from an industry perspective, and from a worker's perspective regarding pay. Now, is that is that like um, linchpin tied to like state funding, at least for some childhood development centers? You Please correct me if I'm understanding this incorrectly. Yeah, so uh, it's, it's, so there's several different type of um, providers, right? There's family child care providers where parents are paying or they have a voucher that pay. There's private centers that is basically tuition based. Mm-hmm. And then there's federal and state funded um, and voucher programs um, for low income families. But it, yes, it is tied directly to um, state funding um, or federal funding. But that only helps federal funded and state funded programs. It doesn't help the private citizens who do not qualify for subsidized care. Uh, so for families who um, are paying you know, monthly tuition, a lot of families are paying more in their, their tuition, monthly tuition than they're paying in their rent or their house payment. Wow. To give you kind of a, an, an idea of, of the cost of, of a quality childcare program. Mm-hmm. No, that definitely paints a fuller picture of what, what the costs are associated with something like this. So Tammy, can you maybe share what are some of the ways that First Five Riverside is working to support early childhood education centers and the greater industry? So in the beginning of the pandemic, we really were in a supportive role for emergency supplies, right? The PPE, um, you know, bleach, those kinds of things that they needed. Uh, And then we were um, partnering with First Five California and the Riverside County Emergency Operations Center because they had supplies. So we were working to ensure that they had those things. Um, Riverside County was allocated some of the CARES Act funding for essential workers. So we partnered with um, the county and Riverside County Office of Education to ensure that essential workers had access to child care at the time they needed it most. And also that would fund those child care providers that stayed open. We also did many grants for centers and family child care. Um, the county did business grants for small businesses because that's what many of these providers are, small businesses. And just pretty much wherever there was a need, we tried to navigate and to help um, where we could. Mm-hmm. So now the advocacy is really strong with how do we utilize some of these federal funds that are coming into the county? How do we work with cities to ensure that there are you know, projects that maybe need support? How do we ensure that we're expanding access? Um, The commission invested $6 million in infrastructure projects, which really is facilities to help expand access for infants and toddlers. Those projects are still underway. Now we need to make sure that we have the workforce to fill, you know, fill those vacancies so that we can support children. Mm -hmm. So the state, um, is working on rate reform, but that's going to be a long process. We have this bifurcated system of how providers get paid depending on 
you know, whether they're state funded, whether they're private, whether they're subsidized. So the early learning master plan is working on, I mean, set up to guide us through this process. And uh, the first step to rate reform has happened through AB 131. And many cities and the county advocated for that to pass, but there's still a lot of work to do because we also need to ensure that some of those funds in rate reform are allocated to the workforce. Mm. Similar to what we do with uh, public funds related to construction projects, right? We have a prevailing wage or a base rate that um, is paid with those public funds. We need to see that happening in this, this system so that um, we can ensure that the, the livable wage is established. And I mean, parents, and caregivers aren't staying home, right? They're they're working. Mm-hmm. So, or they're students, they need childcare. That's not changing. We're not back, you know, back in the 1960s when my mom stayed home with me. That doesn't really exist as, as a standard of living. So we need these systems to be in place for families and for children. Children need those early learning experiences. Um, whether their parents work or not, they need them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think about when we look at the um, Western Riverside County and the greater Inland Empire, just with like growth projections and seeing how a lot, many of the people moving to this area are younger or starting to have families wanting to kind of settle down, buy their first house. There's kind of a a certain demographic, if you will, of familial status. And so with the number of families coming, are is this industry matching pace with all of the challenges that are associated? Like, are we matching pace with the growing population, the growing needs and demands? And um, this is definitely something that um, we should be talking about, especially in regards to sustainability long term. Um, So as we start rounding out our time with the podcast, I wanted to ask, um, what do you think are practical ways that local elected officials and public policy leaders can support early childhood development education and centers kind of from a a larger level? Um, Pam, do you want to start us off? Yeah, the the first thing that comes to my mind, and I know this sounds fairly simple and it's a no cost, uh, no cost of time, really is a great way um, to show programs and child development centers that you are in support um, in what they're what they're doing is to get involved. So it could be as simple as going and reading a, a book to a classroom, you know, at a school, volunteering your time on a project. Um, even if you sat down and talked to the director and talked about what their struggles are and what their successes of their school. I know for us personally, um, we have a city council member from our, that's in our ward, Andy Melendrez, um, who's been a very big supporter of our program, and he's come to a lot of our annual events. Um, over the years, we've had um, Senator Richard Roth, Assembly Member Jose Medina, and Sabrina Cervantes come and visit our school and read books, and that's boosted morale. But it's also allowed the parents to see, hey, you know, you care about about our community. Um, The the other thing that um, I think would be great, um, and this would cost money, is I think it would be great if each city had, and I'm gonna create a name for it, a childcare liaison, right? It would be a paid position of someone who sat on committees, 
uh, met with a, a local, you know, elected officials, policymakers. Um, this liaison may um, help both family child care providers and centers to navigate the waters and their challenges that they face when they um, are dealing with government entities um, in all different levels. So, you know, there's some stumbling blocks that all of us and permits that um, can take time in getting things done. And if there was this liaison, if you will, that we could go to to say, you know, help us, um, I think that would be um, something that I think our, you know, our leaders can do to support um, uh, what um, what we do. Uh, also, uh, when homes are being developed, um, there is, and, and I don't know a lot about housing development um, or um, commercial development, but I do understand. What I do understand is they take into consideration what schools are in the area, and if they need to some developers build schools for the community right but there's not a forethought on preschools or child care facilities so many times builders or developers come in and they're not they're not thinking about um, either our preschool age children or even our after school care um, needs of, of our kids so those are some areas that i feel that our leaders um, can think about getting involved and, and looking at. Mm -hmm. Tammy, would you add to that? Sure. Um, I think there's some opportunities right now that we have not seen, at least in my career, to leverage federal, state, and local dollars to make transformational change. And you've heard this probably at our County Board of Supervisor meetings when they're really interested in working together to ensure that we have the infrastructure that we need. And so that is one way we can all come together in each different district and figure out what's the plan for this district? What, what is the status of childcare right now? Um, how many children are in this district and what are the needs of those families? And really just starting to map out those plans and to utilize the funding that we have um, that lays the foundation for where we go from here. So I think that's one of the most important pieces. The other one, as Pam mentioned, was, you know, if we're gonna build infrastructure, there's $250 million coming down from the state. So again, if we get, you know, what we would estimate to be our share of 15 million and you divide that by a supervisorial district, that's only 3 million per district, right? You could build maybe one child development center with the cost of construction right now. But how do we work together to ensure that's a streamlined process, right? We get through the permits, we get through the planning, all of those things. Then we work with the state to get the licenses so that we're not waiting, you know, months on end to get that site licensed so that we can actually serve children. So there's lots of ways that we can now um, focus on just making sure that this happens and that we improve the processes for how we go forward, but that we utilize these dollars in a very thoughtful way. Mm -hmm. Definitely. Well, thank you both so much for your input and just perspective on this industry. I think so often, um, unfortunately, it is just an assumed kind of part of our normal of society of we drop your kids off, we go to work, we come back, we pick them up and we go home. But with... I think 
I think the reality of COVID-19 in many ways brought us back to certain things that we take take for granted, this being one of them. And so I hope, as you said, Tammy, and as you said, Pam, that we have a brighter future forward with a more robust um, workforce, with better infrastructure. Um, but I really do appreciate both of your guys' efforts and your roles. Um, but do you have any final remarks before we sign off for today, um, either one of you? I, I think um, I'm excited that this podcast is taking place. I'm excited that um, people are looking at what we do and um, are appreciating what we're doing. You know, what we're talking about today isn't new for today. It's been around for years. I mean, I've been in this field for over 40 years. We've been talking about this. We've been pushing for this. We've been hoping for changes. And I'm excited that um, things are changing. And and I, I hope that before I retire, which is hopefully not too long, we'll I'll see a big difference before before I retire. Yeah, I just would say that we need to look at all options um, to make improvements. So we know some of the programs that are out there aren't. You might hear that it's a full day program, but really that doesn't meet the needs of families who work and who might commute. So you talked about you know families moving into Riverside County but they might also work in a neighboring county. So to have programs that meet the needs of the hours that families work is really important. Mm -hmm. And some are non-traditional hours. You know, we have an industry where we have, you know, organizations like Amazon and other warehouses that are here and they don't work just eight to five Monday through Friday. So how are we serving those families as well? So I would just say that we need to be thinking a lot about that and encouraging businesses to also support families who have needs um, for early care and education. Mm -hmm. Definitely. Well, thank you guys so much for being guests on the podcast. Thank you. It's Rachel. For more information on WRCOG and the COGCAST, please visit our website at www.wrcog.us.